The content discussed in the Left Behind series and therefore this podcast includes emotional trauma, human suffering, extreme violence, gore, as well as hurtful caricatures and stereotypes of marginalized groups, and is in no way reflective of the host's personal views or beliefs. But we beeped out the cuss words in case you want to listen in front of your mom. Left Behind is a multimedia franchise that started with a series of 16 best-selling religious novels by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jang by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jang. Oh my God! The future has come to pass. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of I Survived the Rapture. We're that podcast that makes our way through the Left Behind novel series so that you don't have to. I'm your lapsed evangelical Shane Bazell. And I'm your ecumenical fanboy, Gavin Russell. All right, so here we are at the actual halfway point. Technically, ending the last book didn't count as the halfway point. But we are here now. Yeah. This is getting around like the one year mark of make of like conceptualizing the podcast. Too. Yeah, it was about summer of last year. We yeah. were like, hey, we should do this. And then didn't get around to it till like probably late October, early November. But yeah, this is going to be our off-the-record episode for Assassins, book six. I guess we probably need to start by saying, like, how'd you feel about it? Uh, okay, well, out of all of the books so far in the series, Assassins was the most entertaining so far. You think so? But yeah, I would say, so. I think the only one, maybe Apollyon, but this did something for me that I guess it just, like, expanded upon Apollyon, not moralizing as much... And we get just more thriller plot in there. It's a decent book within, like, this own self-contained series. I'm like, this is the best one we got. It's left behind good, Yes. you say? Okay, yeah. so if you're grading it on a curve, it's left behind good. Yeah, we, we, we grade one through four because six through ten don't apply to this series. Right, 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 right. Or five through ten, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm going to have to re-examine what I originally thought I was going to give this as a rating. As we go through this and we start kind of unpacking things, I'm going to be formulating my rating. Okay. It's going to be on my mind. It has kind of weighed on me since the last time I went through the final section of the book. Because I don't disagree with you. I think it is, in a lot of ways, the most entertaining. I think the stakes are at an all-time high. Obviously, there is a lot of death. There's a lot of action. I think some of that action can get a little repetitive. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I could agree with you. I think there are some really cool moments. I think that it brings the story to a conclusion in a really neat way. Mm -hmm. And I think this might be maybe not the first one, but one of the better ones that tease up the next book. I, I think one of the biggest points is it was introducing a moment that we have been teasing for a few books but technically we've been teasing this moment since book one which is just antichrist gotta die okay actually i want to ask you about that so let's unpack that for a second okay did it meet your expectations uh the, why or why not i would say not entirely it was still a cool scene but like one carpathia's death 
was a little bit, I don't know, like that they had that whole thing like where he's like kind of dying and he's saying his, his last words that I feel like it could have been done a little bit differently that I can say that about most plot points in, in these books. They could be done a little bit differently better. Um, <laughs> you know what? Actually, it. It didn't meet my expectations, but it did something different to where you don't really know exactly who killed Carpathia at the very end that I liked. But even though I feel like it's pretty fucking obvious who killed Carpathia, I I'll wait and see. I'm going to ask you right now who you think did it. Patty Durham. I can not say anything right now. <laughs> I want so badly to talk about your answer and to talk about whether it's true or not. Is there like layers can't. to that theory? I No. Okay. So let's talk about that theory for a second. So she barely appears in the book. Mm -hmm. She is spirited away by Sam and then arrested and then thrown in jail. And then we find out that she has escaped from jail somehow. Three times in the, the final chapter, like, is that Hattie? Nah, can't be. It, that can't be Hattie Durham. I think what they were going for there is kind of a cinematic, like, cut after cut after cut throughout that entire scene. And to me, it worked. Like, when I was reading it, I got that feeling. Like, I could visualize in my head sort of the hectic handheld camera. Ray's trying to get through the crowd. He is seeing flashes of the blonde hair or the back of her head or the side of her face or something, maybe underneath, like, a hat or something. Mm -hmm. But it's very clear that it is her. And I think the book really does say, no, nah, it's her. And that's right before that pivotal moment where he does pull the trigger. So I think you told me off mic, it's definitely not Ray. Yeah, it's definitely not Ray. Okay, so you're opinion. going with Hattie. Yeah. All right. I am trying to keep my face as stone as possible so that the reveal is an actual surprise for you. Okay, gotcha. I have a feeling it's not Hattie. <laughs> if it could well, be. Don't say you guess yourself now. I'm, I'm like, don't, like... I, I don't want to tell you anything either by anything that I say or that I don't say. Okay. Comment on the Discord or on Facebook or whatever who you think it is. No spoilers, please. I can see what you're talking about. We're like, you're unsure what to think. Uh, again, we're dogging on this series a lot. It has done one thing right where it's got me like, who the fuck killed the Antichrist? The like, suspense and, is there. Yeah, the suspense is there. So it's like it's at least got me enraptured into the story. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, boom. I'm gonna leave. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I have said that on this podcast before. So. I'll give it points to the suspense. The suspense is there. The action didn't always work for me. I felt like it was repetitive at points. There's only so many times that I can watch someone rush to get on a plane, mm -hmm. you know, and just yeah. barely lift off at an airport because we saw that in a previous book. And then I think we saw it twice here. It's kind of like fuck escaping from a hospital. Like I've seen that happen now three different times, at least if I'm remembering correctly. By the third one, I was like, come on write a different action scene like write an actual car chase like not a car chase in a bus that can't go over a certain mile per hour i think they are kind of hamstrung by the fact that they can't write legit fights what do you mean by that but elaborate okay so i said this i think on either part two or part three of this book I think this is where they have started to turn a corner, or at least Jerry has started to turn a corner, where he's decided they're going to take the feedback about how violent and, as you've said previously, bloodthirsty the books are, and is going to start to paint the desire for violence and vengeance and blood as a bad thing. I'm going to put a big asterisk next to bad, because it's not necessarily bad, it's bad if humans do it. 
because, you know, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. It's okay if God does it, because God's going to come back and, and wipe out a bunch of the Antichrist people, right? Mm-hmm. But the slow descent into anger, vengeance, violence, and self-pity that is swirling around Ray, that's kind of hanging over him like a dark cloud, that's kind of been building since Soul Harvest. Yeah. I think that that is them trying to make an effort to lessen the degree of physical violence that their characters engage in. And not just physical violence, emotional violence, you know, manipulation, negative action towards other people. And I think that the bow scene is also part of that. With that being said, they're trying to lessen the amount of fights and physical confrontations and just general action hero-y, par-for-the-course kind of stuff. Yeah that these characters do in trying to make them look like better Christians, that's going to cut your legs out from under you when you have to write an action scene. Really, all that they can do is dodge and run away. So what you're saying is kind of one of the sub-themes of this book is that they had to show them that their actions have consequences. (laughs) (laughs) When will they learn? (laughs) You frickin' fricks. (laughs) God, man. You were doing really well with the Sonic memes over the last few episodes. Like, you catch me sleeping, you know that. <laughs> so, yeah, but do you do you feel like actions and consequences are an actual theme? Like, I know you're memeing, but... I, you know, I'm actually, I'm, you know, even though I'm memeing, being serious, like, I feel like that's something that really leaned heavy into this book. They played with it in a kind of cool way. Like I said, like, Rayford for books being like, I'm going to kill the Antichrist, and him being, like, in front by getting the robot, buddy. <laughs> it's like, it's it's kind of that sort of deal. Yeah, it really is kind of a getting the robot Shinji moment for him. I think that not just consequences, but also like comeuppance mm-hmm. is another thing. Because if you think about Zion's messages, he has definitely turned into you had your chance. Now, especially once the horsemen start riding and massacring all of these people, the tone of his messages has really turned almost adversarial and judgmental into that. Well, you had your chance. I've been preaching online for years now. You knew this was coming. You didn't not know. Sorry, your actions have consequences. Mm -hmm. You have Matthews who has been constantly in the middle of his jockeying with Carpathia and trying to overthrow him. He gets his comeuppance. He is ultimately struck down Mm -hmm. by the same people he was trying to manipulate against Carpathia. In a way, Hattie has her own consequences. She ends up going to jail. Ray ends up not only alienating the Force, but alienating people like T who are Force-adjacent. And he ends up getting, you know, innocent people killed in a way. Like, he drags the Tuttles along with him. He's careless, and he gets them killed. Yeah, I'm definitely seeing with this book how, like, even though that they have this, quote-unquote, victory over the Antichrist is very much a facade because all they really did was they kind of made a bunch of mistakes this book and turned Ganondorf into Ganon. Right, and that's another thing. So can we talk about that for a second? Yeah, go ahead. Killing the Antichrist was a fulfillment of prophecy, and according to the kind of internal conceit of the book, it had to happen, right? Mm -hmm. This has to happen because it's in Revelation, and this is how he interpreted it. The Antichrist has to die at the halfway point. But it doesn't really accomplish anything. Yeah. And what you will find in the later books is that it actually technically makes things worse. I think you get into a weird area of predestination and destiny and things like that here. So we're in full-blown, like, fantasy territory, like, mythological territory, because we're talking about destiny and, like, preordained events. 
And I guess that also goes into, like, you can look at, like, the history of the religion itself with, like, the whole Gnostic, like, schism where they're like, oh, no, Judas, like, had to do the stuff that he did. So, like, he's, like, part of it, man. Uh, can you explain that for a second? Because I'm not too familiar with Gnosticism. I don't quote, I'm not an expert on this, so don't quote me. So I might have to, like, go back and make sure that I'm, I'm actually speaking right. But, like, the Gospel of Judas goes into a little bit of how, like, Jesus basically took Judas aside and was like, hey, in order to fulfill prophecy, you have to turn me in. So, like, do it, bro. Oh, man, so Judas was, like, the revolver ocelot yeah. of that. Like, yeah. he had to be programmed to be the bad guy, to betray the savior figure. And or so the savior could, like, get crucified and, like, that whole, and that whole thing, like, becomes fulfilled. Yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah, I did manage to turn it back into Middle Gear Solid, so... <laughs> Don't worry, I saw, I'm not an expert on this. You're like, well, I am an expert on this one thing. Yeah, well, I'm going to turn it back to the thing I am an expert on. <laughs> Someone's going to be in the comments like, spoilers! Look, you've had decades to play those games now. <laughs> one of my problems here, and I don't think that it affects the quality of the book. I'm going to say that. I really don't think that it impacts the enjoyment I had reading parts of this book. I don't think that it impacts the quality of the narrative. But when you look at it, and you zoom out, I think it's a flaw that they are so married to Tim LaHaye's very particular interpretation of prophecy that it makes them tell a bad story. Yeah, I can see that. You know, it's yeah. their grander narrative is poorer for it rather than, you know, trying to tell a good story here. You are trying to be married to this one guy's idea of what this one book of the Bible says, you know? Mm hmm. I think that if you're Jerry B. Jenkins and you have the opportunity to explore a little bit, kind of, you know, just really explore the space, you know? I think that's a cool idea, like setting stuff in the book of Revelation, you know, in the end times, even if it's this kind of Tim LaHaye-esque premillennial dispensationalist type of rapture interpretation, I think that that's cool. And you can even play into the idea that maybe your characters don't know everything that's going to happen. That's even cooler. Yeah, amps up the suspension a little bit. Or even if you split your main characters, your, like your point of view characters, and not everyone has a Zion Ben Judah that they can go to, mm -hmm. that can be the mouthpiece for the prophecy guy. I think Zion, while I like him and the way he is written as a character, when he does get to be a character and not an exposition machine, I think that Zion is a problem narratively mm -hmm. because he tells everyone what's going to happen before it happens he's like a living MacGuffin. yeah you know and he's falling into a weird mythological trope you know he's like mimir you know he's the head that tells prophecy to odin he's the oracle he is kind of like the voice of god almost too like if you want to look at from like an old testament standpoint he is god giving the tablets to moses and like the tablets are his website and the right. people at the bottom of the mountain are his billion followers i would almost say that he is the method of dispensation mm -hmm. if we want to get theological about it and i think that that makes the narrative less interesting because if your characters know what's going to happen beforehand and they just go along with it that's kind of boring that's a larger criticism of the book's as a whole, it's not me criticizing this book. But since we're at the halfway point, I feel like we can kind of flex a little bit. We just finished sophomore year. We've been around a little bit. We can talk about the books as a whole. But I will tell you, the books as a whole are about to change drastically. Oh, yeah. Like, we have hit an event that I, we, we've said this, I think, several times. But, like, each event that happens that totally changes things is almost like another rapture moment. 
This is where two heads of state, the leader of Enigma Babylon and Nikolai Carpathia, are dead. The world is in mass disarray. We're probably about to go into full-blown 1984 Oceania, Brave New World, world State-esque territory. Yes, with half the population that the world began with at the literal beginning of the series. Mm -hmm. So the world's population has been cut completely in half. We finally did a slow Thanos over three and a half years. Slow Thanos. Yeah, slow Thanos. The slow Thanos pierces the shield. <laughs> Dune meme for oh people God. in there. Since you mentioned Dune, when it comes to things like prophecy and, you know, the wise man figure, I think Dune does that in ways that are more interesting. Yes. And it explores the consequences of it because this book goes right up to the line and kind of like dips its toe into having Zion wrestle with the weight of being prophecy guy. Mm -hmm. Now, do I think it would be good form for them to spend a lot of pages indulgently pontificating on Zion's emotional turmoil of being prophecy guy. I think it's a little self-serving because he's a mouthpiece for Tim. <laughs> but I kind of want to see that though, because you had that moment at the end that it's kind of a blink and you'll miss it, is that Zion sort of tossing and turning about I said it was going to be a sword. I said, I didn't say it was going to be a gun. Could I have been wrong? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would love to see more of that as far as I remember, we don't get it. Yeah. There's not a lot of Zion questioning. There's not a lot of Zion wondering. And when you're pulling from a book like the Bible, in which major patriarchal heroes, and I'm using patriarch in the Old Testament kind of sense, not like patriarchy, but your characters like Moses doubted God. They had actual very real conversations with God about their own doubts. You know, Moses at the burning bush saying like, uh, why do I have to be the guy? Because I don't speak very well. David having indiscretions and sinning and not listening to the prophets. Peter's big moment. Peter, like, yeah, yeah, if you want to go New Testament. Betraying, Peter denying yeah. Christ. Yeah, Judas betraying Christ. I guess what we're kind of saying is the Bible's a very important series of religious texts. It's not a great story yeah. all the way. Like, they're like, oh, greatest story ever told. Uh, have you seen Star Wars? <laughs> There's better stories. Like, not that there aren't good stories in the Bible. There's some pretty good ones in there, and they're all right. But they kind of run into the same thing that a lot of mythological stories do in that, like, they were written for a completely different audience. Yeah. You know, like, they don't, they just don't play anymore the same way. They're not paced the same as a modern novel. They're not paced the same as a modern film. You kind of have to punch them up. Yeah. And when you're bound to that as your storytelling meter, that's your metronome, I think that it makes your story less good. Okay. So that's one thing that stood out to me. Let me ask you something else, because okay. we talked about Ray's slow descent into violence and vengeance and everything. I did mention self-pity mm -hmm. and obviously depression and all these other things. Do you think that the book does enough to kind of hold its own characters accountable for the things that they are doing. Not entirely. They try to. They show Ray kind of having like a falling out and it's he is under like a lot of like stress. Some of the actions that Ray uh, does and like what he has to do to like compensate for that don't really match up that well. Maybe I'm feeling charitable cuz I could very easily say it's too little too late. Because I don't feel like Jerry was really building up to this throughout like Soul Harvest and Apollyon and then into now. I feel like the books were not concerned with telling that story until we got here. He decided this is what we're going to write about this time. This is going to be Ray's journey this time. 
we've made no bones about the fact that we think, you know, the book is trying to portray these actions as negative. Obviously it is, but I'm going to give it to him. You know what? I can too. Yeah. Like I, like I said, maybe I'm being overly charitable, but there's enough in there, especially once he starts questioning his own mental health. That was a good point. Yeah. And I, I want to give him that. And I think that it is a step in the right direction. I am also looking at it from the long view of having read the rest of the books and I know where some of the content is going. So I think this is an important step in how Ray is kind of being recontextualized. And it is part of a character journey for him. Okay. Yeah. I guess like an, enough wasn't done as far as like Rayford like making up for it. A little bit of that, I guess, is like the forgiveness sub theme in there. Like, okay, yeah. even that Rayford like did mess up. Hey, they all care about him because they're one big happy tribulation force. Yeah, you can call it forgiveness or yeah. redemption. I think that it can't go without saying, though, that Buck has almost nothing to do in this book. You know what? Yeah. He has almost nothing to do. Ray was boring when the series started, and Buck was the one who got all the cool moments. Not that Ray wasn't a constant POV character, but we kind of joked about Sad Boy Ray. Like, it's always him. The first book, he's sad and drinking. In the second book, he's sad and then finds a wife. And then in the third book, you know, he's sad and maybe escapes some dangerous situations. In the fourth book, he's sad. Sad, no wife. Sad, no wife. <laughs> right. <laughs> but Ray is boring. And this is the first book in which Ray did not feel boring. To yeah. me. Unfortunately, Buck had to suffer as a result of it. Now, does he get to go do his Buck thing at the end? A little. Mm-hmm. And he's in the right place at the right time and getting to be a part of things. And also, Buck's having to be a father, too. So I guess that maybe that's a little bit of it. But at the same time, like, Chloe had... How much stuff did Chloe have in this book? Not much. Yeah, so about the same as Buck. Less. So I guess... So well, she's I, a woman, so less. So I guess it was kind of like, <laughs> oh, Buck and Chloe got to take care of their child. Maybe. As a good Christian couple should. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, little, little Kenny won't raise himself. Exactly. Which I don't know if Kenny coming into the picture... I wish I knew Jerry's writing process, I guess is what I'm saying. Is like, okay, man, did you outline all of this ahead of time? Like, okay, Buck and Chloe are going to kind of take a backseat, Chloe more so. Because this is a Ray story, and then we're going to lift up these other characters like Mac and David and Annie and give them more of a POV, David especially. Like, David gets a lot of play in this book, Um, and I like David well enough. I think he's a little too much of a utility character for my liking. I think he is more there to do stuff, but his internal monologue is interesting. Yeah, he's fun. How he's having to, like, be the insider man with the global community and having to do the most kind of covert stuff is pretty fun. Right. He doesn't really have much of a personality. And I think that's a loss. Yeah. But I liked it when his chapters came up and he gets to be the POV into all of the dirty global community stuff that we normally wouldn't get to see more so than even Ray was. You know what I mean? Yeah. What do you think about Hyam? Hyam, one, uh, again, we're getting to the territory where we're starting to reach the spoilers that you gave me before the beginning of the podcast. Uh, Hyam's training to be a ninja. <laughs> <laughs> Like, what are you doing? Nothing? Just becoming a mall ninja in my room? The 70-year-old botanist ninja. Is he, like, gonna have, like, some kind of, like, metal exoskeleton? Does he get, like, healed by God? Because, like, there's this whole, like, where he has kind of a stroke going on that keeps on talking about. Right. So, like, how does that get fixed so he can use his cool sword? 
We'll see, I guess. I can't tell you, but Hyam is wild in this book. Like, he's all over the place because his journey, as far as the Christian thing, doesn't really get to advance. He's kind of just stuck in one place, which I think they're probably trying to use that to show someone who is stubborn to come to faith. I'm sure if you asked Jerry, that's what he'd say. In place of that, like, you get all the weird, like, forge master shit. Like, he's forging a sword in his shed, also dealing with the complications of being an elderly man and then maybe having a stroke, kind of. It's weird. Yeah. Definitely weird. Hyam is definitely taking a turn I didn't expect him to. He's one of the characters I was the most, like, critical about at the very beginning, and, but now it's at the point I'm like, Jerry, what are you doing with this character? Where is he going? I am going to tell you that will all become clear in the next book, and then his journey, like a lot of the books, is going to take a very different trajectory. Okay. I can't promise it'll be good, but I promise it'll make you go, huh. Okay. Okay. (laughs) That might be my go-to phrase for the latter half of the books is, huh, okay. Honestly, places these books in pretty good company because one of my favorite series of all time, Dark Tower, latter half of those books, I spent a lot of time going, huh, okay, Steve. We're We're doing doing this now? (laughs) All right, buddy. Was was Dark Tower in his Coke years? Um, no. Okay. It spans a lot of time. The halfway point, the best book was 97. And then the final three in the main series were 2003 and then two of them in 2004. Okay. So yeah, I think he was, uh, I think he was off the booger sugar by then. Okay. So yeah, Hyam's got us kind of like, you know, tilting your head a little bit. I promise that stuff actually does pay off. There will be some payoff to some of the weirdness with Hyam in this book. Okay. Let's talk about the witnesses if if you want. Yeah, through. that's a good one. Um, let's, So I think we would be kind of remiss if we didn't mention that even though they are mentioned in every book, we finally lose Eli and Moisha this time. Yeah, and like they're my first like characters that like other than the Triv Force that I, I mean, they're, they're, te- they're not technically, I mean. No, nah, they're not. They're, they're, they're adjacent. Like, they're adjacent. I mean, they're on the same team, but. But they're not the Triv Force. Their power level is much higher. Gotcha. They're like the first characters that really caught my eye because they're playing with all this uh, the spiritual supernatural stuff which was kind of cool you know the reincarnated elijah and moses boys the, the most fantastical element that they put in their books so far yeah so far the the end of their arcs is kind of what i expected it just like a recreation of like the passion of the christ almost s scenario where like they're just being scourged yeah it was didn't really deviate much from what i what i thought was going to happen it was a neat neat conclusion to their arc i like that they didn't dwell on it yeah you know, it was sudden, it was violent, was, I wouldn't say jarring, because we knew it was going to happen, mm-hmm. and that's another thing, like, we're back to, okay, if it's all prophetic, and we know it's going to happen, you can't really shock me, so I applaud Jerry for leaving the whole book on a cliffhanger, but the way that it was written, and how garbage Nikolai was when he was doing it, just eating grin on his face the whole time. I think it did a good job of villainizing him. What do you think about going forward without their presence in the book? One, I feel the role that Eli and Moisha fell will be in a way fulfilled by two more characters or just a lot of the the God side um, uh, in general. Even though they died, the spirit of Eli and Moisha will continue on. You said two more characters. Oh, no. Did- Have you been reading ahead? No. Okay. Uh, it's just like, it's kind of like, okay. 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 Uh, these are just <laughs> predictions. 
This is my Nostradamus level, like, in sync. I've gotten in with these books now. We'll, we'll see how that pans out. Just curious. Okay, because like, it was just... That's not a confirmation or a denial. We'll see. But, uh, yeah, it's just, like, I feel like something will come along that fills that void that Eli and Moisha, like, stood in. It does in a pretty big way. Okay. But it's not probably the way you think. Okay. I don't even know, like, there's not even a way I'm thinking. It's just, like, something's gonna happen. Right. But... To say on the prophecy thing again, though, and that it's not going to happen the way you think, that is one of the things that I take kind of a weird, perverse joy in when I read these books, is that you have all the prophecy and you think that things are going to go a certain way because they have to hit all these beats and you know what Tim believes is going to happen. But the way they get there is sometimes absolute moon logic. Mm -hmm. And like, man, wouldn't have written it that way. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that there's a lot of that in this book, too. Like, Calling the gun a saber and then having Ray in position to kill the Antichrist, thereby fulfilling the prophecy because the gun is named after a type of sword. Okay, that's interesting. And I liked how Nikolai had one too. Sure. Yeah, it's like, okay, it's neat. We've already shown what the gun can do. I don't understand the purpose of him having that. I guess it's just like the Antichrist has, again, the most high-tech weapon in the world. I guess. And he's he wants to make a spectacle of it. If he's going to kill the witnesses, he wants to do it bombastically. Yeah, exactly. So he wants the saber. Right. <laughs> Where the moon logic comes in, though, is how bug nutty that gun is. Like, you didn't have to do that. I don't know. Like, we're still in for more surprises. And I think that now that we've reached the weirdness, because you guys hadn't heard me go overboard about the weirdness in a while, I think now that the weirdness is here again, we're only going to go up from here. We got good things coming. Guys, we got Indwelling next, and then we get to The Mark. That's the one that I'm looking forward to the most. I've read a little bit through Indwelling already, because this was the first time that before the off the record, I mean, maybe I've done this before, but I haven't done this for a few, at least for a few books, where I started the next book before the off the record. So it's got me, like, in there. Yeah. So I want to ask you something specifically, but before we get to Nikolai, which is where I want to end this, before we go into the ratings. Okay. When it comes to Ray as a character and as a Christian, given his actions and given the things that he has contemplated and done, when you compare his morality to that of, let's say, God, okay, where do you think they stack up? Because I didn't want to get out of this without mentioning God's place in this. And I feel like we kind of glossed over Leah a little bit, too. So I'd like to talk about her, if that's okay with you. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about God for a second. Okay, let's talk about God. And put God on trial for a second. What was your reaction to the horseman killing a third of the population of non-believers and then his followers backing it up with, you had your chance? Because I know I mentioned that earlier. What are we looking at in terms of morality on God here? That's kind of getting into, like, the main reason that I even, like, began to go away from the church like as a as a kid there's a part of me that that's one of the parts of like the program they give you i i can't understand that it's like it's something that i've tried for years to understand and i at a certain point i'm like i feel like the act of trying to understand that is an exercise that goes nowhere it's it's futile yeah having just these demonic horsemen that are like controlled by God to take out all of these non-believers, it that just seems like just seems like blatant like spiritual scare scare tastic. It does. Yeah. And like if I'm 
a screenwriter and I'm pitching you a character and I'm just like, all right, this guy is basically all powerful. He's like a god, right? But if you don't believe in him, he goes to his enemy who lives in hell, puts a bunch of demonic horsemen on his payroll, brings them up to earth and lets them just massacre a third of the people that don't believe in him. Mm -hmm. Just cuz. And like, they don't die peacefully like they don't just exhale no 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 they are inhaling noxious vapors and choking and being burnt up with fire it's it's a horrible way to die that's the good guy yeah (laughs) i just don't know man like like how do you how do you reconcile that like and look nikolai is an asshole yes like he's not a good guy and this is the beginning of because guys you know he's coming back sorry like you know this is the beginning of his portrayal as more of a bad guy like he is reveling in the evil that he's doing we had the prayer to satan which again my favorite part of the book except for maybe the robo scorpions but when you stack him up next to god it's kind of like a weird alien versus predator whoever wins we lose thing yeah and we've talked about that before like you know do you want the global dictatorship run by a satan man or do you want a global dictatorship run by the god emperor like Mm -hmm. it's kind of your only choices but when you were growing up in church, what was the excuse that you were given for that? Because, I mean, did you get the standard pat, like, his ways are not our ways, mysterious ways, or, you know, man cannot know the mind, you know, that kind of thing. I, I kind of got all that thrown at me. <laughs> yeah, Because it was the- like, it, it was kind of like, I, they would give me that, and then I'm like, well, that's how this answer wouldn't make sense. Like, okay, go to the next one. All right, that one. Then it's like they had, like, a, a secret flow chart that they weren't showing me of, like, all of the, uh, the responses to the, the, like, I don't understand that particular justification. And none of them worked. It was like either like we don't understand his ways. We're our own autonomous beings. So like if we didn't make the choice before this event, that's on us. I got thrown that. Uh, They've just said like, hey, all you got to do is believe and you don't got to worry about that stuff was another kind of thing. It's just like all of these justifications that fall short in some way or another that it just seems like they don't even kind of know the answer. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that that puts Christians of this stripe, because I don't want to paint Christianity with too broad a brush. There are obviously so many different interpretations of the theology and how different people relate to it in different circumstances. American evangelical Christianity is a lens of privilege, often middle class, not people who are suffering in a very specific way. So, of course, it's going to be easy to write off the acts of God as, oh, well, he must have meant for it to happen. I'm not saying that people in that particular demographic don't suffer, but it's a different type of existence. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. The things you are going through are very different than someone in, say, lower socioeconomic circumstances or someone in a country that is in the midst of constant war and conflict, you know, or an area of the globe that is economically disadvantaged, or even someone who is in your same socioeconomic bracket but might be, you know, of a different ethnicity or might, you know, be of a different sexual orientation. You know, there's so a great deal of privilege. And we've talked about that with their unlimited money. Yeah. In these books, you know, they're coming from a place of privilege. It's easy to look at God and go, well, I stubbed my toe today, but his ways are not mine. So I don't know why that happened, but I'm not going to curse God for it. So with that as a contrast in mind, I'm going to hit you with my big question. Okay. As we say goodbye to him. Okay. Is Nikolai Carpathia a bad guy? 
Definitely, Nikolai Carpathia has to have done bad things. But as far as a bad guy alt, well, you know what? Yes, I would say he's a bad guy. If it wasn't for some of his, like, where they portray him, like, as just, like, rubbing his hands together, like, oh, I'm killing everyone today. Oh, boy, here I go killing again. Oh, boy, I get to kill 70 bajillion people just like all the rest of the communists. Right, exactly. I think that he is caricatured in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. He is the Republican nightmare, the slick, effete, erudite, European-ish politician. Kind of overawes the world with his book learning Mm -hmm. and his socialism. But behind the scenes, he is a maniacal madman. Yeah, and I I would say if we didn't have some of that caricature aspects, you know, the hand-wringing, like, oh, I'm going to get him. And like some of the more manipulative tactics, I would say that a lot of like his beliefs aren't that bad. I don't even think being duplicitous and being manipulative are necessarily bad. Like people love Loki. People love Tyrion Lannister. Okay. You know, people love Han Solo. I don't think that those are inherently evil traits. I think where I definitely agree with you is when you get to see him behind the scenes and he is relishing in the violence and the murder and the death. Mm -hmm. and the war and destruction and everything the punishment of his enemies you know i think that's inherently negative and i think they almost have to add that in there and be like oh by the way he's coded as evil because all the rest of the stuff that he's doing is legitimately helping Mm -hmm. now does he do everything perfectly no he does nuke a city or two he does start some wars he does lie he does steal he does a bit of the light murder You could still put that in as kind of a greater good, almost. I think he is a more complex character than he got to be. Yeah. Is that a fair statement, you think? I would say so. Like, again, if Left Behind was, for some reason, written by, uh, like, another set of writers with a slightly different set of political biases, Nikolai Carpathia could have been a much more fulfilling character. If you make him more of a pawn in the grander cosmic battle and not as complicit on the actual side of hell. Mm -hmm. As much as I love that prayer and I will never not love that prayer. (laughs) If you make him less complicit and more of an instrument in fulfilling prophecy, sure. He can still get shot and become indwelt by Satan. That's fine. And once Satan's at the wheel, that's a different character now. And I will go ahead and put a pin in that as we get some of the later books. I think he's a better character if he is less aware of the supernatural stakes at play. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So as much as I love the prayer, like I said, I think it actually does a disservice to the character. And I guess the last person that I really want to talk about, um, since we did a lot of character things, we're kind of doing the inverse of the players thing that we did at the beginning that that Jerry and Tim did. I want to talk about Leah. Okay. I'm going to tell you Leah's role does increase over the next couple of books. Like, she's going to be around for a minute. What did you think about the way she was brought in, specifically her interactions with Ray? Did it seem weird and kind of out of left field to you? A little did bit, Did it seem yeah. like they were teasing some sort of will-they-won't-they they thing again? Like, like, almost the Amanda White plot that you didn't get? Yeah, it, I said a few times in the review, it's like, uh, like, one... Are they setting up this to be Rayford's third wife? And no. Which is also what Buck thought. Yeah. <laughs> Man, Ray, you're getting really close to another uh, woman. You don't usually do that. You trying to marry this one too? 
Yeah, I know, man. Yeah, it seemed like she was kind of like rushed in and so, even some of the way, and I know Rayford was being rational at the moment, but just some of that, those plot threads just seemed like out there. I'm like, okay, this, this seems kind of odd. Borderline some Tribulation Force character drama. Like yes. big things are happening and you are slowing down to have like bickering and infighting. Mm-hmm. I didn't need another character to come in and do that. I would have preferred to see bickering and infighting between the existing members of the force. Yeah, maybe like a, like Rayford and Chloe having like a, a tussle would have been interesting. Maybe. Oh no, here's an idea. Maybe you don't like kill Floyd. Yeah. And like you keep him around for a little while because he was a strong voice and a different presence in the force, he had a different set of skills, he had a different background, he was smarter than some of the other characters, and they just, nope, killed him. I'm still mad about that. Yeah, there's they're starting to get a little bit lazy with some of the deaths almost. Like, I, even though I didn't, like, care when the Tuttles died, it was kind of anticlimactic of, like, Okay, yeah, they're they're just they're just gone. It felt like it was done for shock value. Yeah, like to just galvanize Ray in his quest more, mm-hmm. which I think is kind of unfair when you create a character like that. You know, you get their whole backstory, you get all of their testimony, you get to know them as characters. Say what you want about Dwayne being annoying, he was a different kind of presence. It's as much credit as I'm gonna give him. And then they die. I don't know what he was trying to accomplish there. I don't think it was a good beat, all said. So with that, you know, I think Leah did get done a disservice in this particular book, but I want to see what you think of her in the books that come after this. Okay, gotcha. All right, so keep an eye on Leah. I haven't said keep an eye on a character in a while. Keep an eye on her. Gotcha. What else? Uh, the the love plot in this, like we said before, pretty dope. Again, just ha- don't, don't have them like beat around the bush. Just get them together. You can make good drama like I love that. how that's our bar. <laughs> like, the bar for romance plot is set so low that just to see a responsible, grounded, realistic adult relationship, it's like, oh! You're doing it! Oh, my God! It's so, God, it's so refreshing. That's definitely a, uh, we're damning with faint praise here. Our standards of what, what we want a left behind book to be has, like, gone down a little bit. I'm taking that into account when it comes to my rating, too. Mm-hmm. Speaking of ratings, all right. I think it's time. Okay. As you guys all know, when we reach the end of a book, when we record an off-the-record episode, we have to give each one of these novels a rating of horsemen out of four. Mm-hmm. So one, two, three, four, anywhere in between. We do the decimal points sometimes. So Gav, I'm okay. going to let you go first. Go ahead and kind of give me your thoughts and then hit them with a rating. Well, I've noticed like other off-the-records we... I wouldn't say we we didn't have like a lack of stuff to talk about, but this was the first time we're like, we didn't really have to stop and think like we were just like full blown enthusiastic the entire time relishing in like all the plot beats that happen for the first time in on the show. I'm going to give it a four. Holy shit. Yeah. Oh, man. Is, is this, is this going to be the first like where we're we're a good bit off from each other? I don't know. I'm conflicted, man. I really am. Because I told you after my first read through 
as we were starting part one that I was probably going to give it a four. I actually thought that I was. I really thought I was going to go there for a polygon, okay. but I didn't. Okay. In the midst of talking about it, hit some stuff that was going to hold me back. And I'm having trouble. Okay. Because I've I've read through it now like three times in prepping for this, plus the original time that I read it. And I'm now sitting here on air. You've given it a four. And I'm, because we don't talk about this really beforehand with the final verdicts. I'm like, man, I don't know. Like I've just spent an hour almost talking about the stuff that I largely didn't like and some stuff that I did. But you know what? Given the amount of times that I read it, that I did enjoy it, that I think that it does a lot of interesting things and it starts to turn the franchise in a slightly different direction. I was never truly bored. I think a lot of the beats hit me in a positive way. I'm never going to not have criticism of this, right? So I can't just deduct for like, oh, I had things I didn't like. Yeah, like we said, the reason that we go one through four is because five through ten have like a gray bar over them. All right. You convinced me. I really think that we need a four for the bar, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm going to happily, in this case, give it a four. I think it is probably the one of the ones that I've enjoyed most in terms of pacing and in terms of the plot, hitting that stride of thriller while also mixing in some of the supernatural stuff. I think that it had some really cool stuff happen. It felt like the final number before the intermission, mm-hmm. which is really what it is. Yes. So, you know what? Yeah. Yeah, let's go with four. So we're both going to give it a four this time. Yep. Oh, man. So we now have like a full range where we have a one and a four that yes. we covered. So we now we have the bars. Yes, we have the bars now. So Tribulation Force is a one, Assassins is a four. And so now you guys have the scale for when we rate the rest of these books. <laughs> I almost said begrudging four, or I might've said 3.5. And I'm like, I've been given a lot of like the 0.5. So you know what? I'm just going to, you know, stop being a coward and give it a four. So yeah, look at us, huh? Who'd (laughs) have thought? Who'd have thought? Not me. Not me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're here now, but of course we're going to have to end the show moving forward into the next book. What follows is the plot summary for the indwelling. The beast takes possession. The members of the Tribulation Force face their most dangerous challenges. Some are murder suspects. Others test the precarious line between subversion and being revealed. At the midway point of the seven-year Tribulation, a renowned man is dead and the world mourns. In heaven, the battle of the ages continues to rage until it spills onto Earth and all hell breaks loose. All right, so is that get you excited for the next one the outro music has never uh applied so much yes satan is real boys we are getting into it next time speaking of next time i want to go ahead and end the show on what is going to be kind of an important announcement for us going forward we will be as of this next episode moving the show to a bi-weekly release schedule for the time being We had a lot of free time, obviously, during 2020 to prep and get things ready to go. But as things are starting to open up, more vaccinated and life starting to return to something remotely resembling normalcy, we are going to be a little bit more active. So we're going to move things to a biweekly schedule. We'll still be here for you. We're still trucking along. But for now, until we announce otherwise, the shows will be released biweekly. So every other week. You'll get the same updates on Facebook, Discord, Twitter. We'll we'll try to let you guys know when those are coming out. You will still be able to follow us on the same feeds on Spotify and everywhere else. 
We didn't go anywhere. We'll keep you posted. We'll make an announcement about this on the Facebook when this goes live. Please send us your feedback. That helps make the content even better. And we like hearing from you guys. You have good outlooks. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing that we like more doing this podcast than engaging with the audience. Like, we love you guys. Don't be shy. Pop up on the Facebook, the Discord. We love to hear from you, like Gavin said. But I think that's going to do it for this, our sixth off the record, right? I think so. So officially at this halfway point, we will bid you adieu. And don't... We haven't said bye yet. Oh, we haven't said bye you can't say You can't say the don't yet. Okay. Hold up. I don't usually do So <laughs> this has been another episode of I Survived the Rapture. Until next time, I'm Shane Bazell. And I'm Gavin Russell. And remember... Your actions have consequences. You freaking freaks. Bye. Okay, that's our show. Please make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all at Rapture Podcast. I Survived the Rapture is part of the IndieSource Podcast Network. For more great shows and to join the conversation, please visit IndieSource.com and check out the IndieSource Discord. We'll see you there, and thanks for listening. He can help you and lead you astray.